Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Suspect Communities, Anti-Muslim Racism, and the Domestic War on Terror is a powerful reassessment of the U.S. government's Countering Violent Extremism, or CVE, program that has arisen in major cities across the United States since 2011. Drawing on an interpretive qualitative study, Nicole Wen examines how the concept behind CVE, aimed at combating homegrown terrorism by engaging Muslim community members, teachers, and religious leaders in monitoring and reporting on young people has been operationalized through the everyday work of CVE actors from high-level national security workers to local community members with significant penalties for the communities themselves. By undertaking this analysis, Nicole Wen offers a vital window into the inner workings of the U.S. security state and the devastating impact of the CVE program on local communities. In our conversation, we discuss counterterrorism policy, radicalization theories, national security trainings and conferences, the difference between anti-Muslim racism and Islamophobia, public objections to CVE, activist resistance, how and why Muslims participate in policing communities, targeting Muslim youth, and the role of schools and teachers. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. And now, without any further delay, here's my conversation with Nicole Wen about Suspect Communities, Anti-Muslim Racism, and the Domestic War on Terror, published with the University of Minnesota Press. Welcome, Nicole. Thanks for joining me on New Books in Islamic Studies. How are you? Good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you about your your great new book, Suspect Communities. Um, before we get into that, though, we always start with a little bit about our authors. Um, and I am uh, really interested because you're not really an Islamic studies person. Uh, so I, I, I'm eager to see kind of how your, your background or education um, kind of brought you to the topic of anti-Muslim racism. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. My formal training is actually in educational policy studies. Uh, so it is a, a sort of backroads way that I came to um, the study of anti-Muslim racism and national security. Um, I had finished a ethnography of a high school that had a homeland security studies program that was all about training sort of the next generation of really low-level national security workers. So if you think about border patrol agents, TSA agents, um, and the like. And as I was finishing up that ethnography of, of really trying to understand how the U.S. was aligning its public education system with these national security um, goals, that I came across a, a website. It was called uh, an FBI website called Don't Be a Puppet. And it was this sort of online portal designed to train high school students essentially how not to become terrorists or violent extremists. And for me, it was yet another way the, the United States was using education, educational platforms for these national security goals. 
And I think part of why Don't Be a Puppet resonated with me was, um, you know, my dad is originally from Vietnam and we would hear these stories about how um, U.S. aid organizations would deliver humanitarian aid, would deliver different kinds of resources to South Vietnamese communities as a, as a sort of intelligence gathering initiative. And, um, you know, people in Vietnam would refer to these projects as, you know, it's the CIA, it's these sort of spy agencies who are infiltrating communities through the provision of social services. And so I think part of why I was interested in following national security policies that were about leveraging social services and community leaders was that resonance with, um, you know, national security practices that were happening in places like um, Vietnam and uh, Palestine and so on. And so I think that was part of what drew me in, um, in addition to sort of that, that educational wrinkle um, in, in national security policy. Yeah, and that, um, you know, much of that work is um, featured in your, your first book, A Curriculum of Fear, which is also great. And I, I would encourage uh, listeners to, to check out. Um, so this one focuses on um, this program, Countering Violent Extremism. And um, some listeners may be familiar with this, but I'm, I'm wondering if you could kind of just uh, kind of give us a lay of the land to start. So what, what are the goals of CVE? How does it get implemented? Uh, what's kind of the, the, the starting point with thinking about this topic? Sure. Yeah. So countering violent extremism or CVE for short, um, you know, dates back about 10 to 15 years. And the idea from the United States perspective was that we have these sort of hard counterterrorism measures. We have blanket surveillance, we have FBI sting operations, and we have, of course, uh, military interventions in places like Afghanistan. And as the United States was sort of uh, reevaluating its military strategies, it realized that we can't just you know, in the words of, you know, uh, one of the participants in this study, we can't kill or capture essentially our way to national security. We have to develop these other tools uh, of national security. And so countering violent extremism is one domestic iteration of creating these softer anti-terrorism tools. And the idea behind CVE is that we can, the, the, the United States can leverage, um, sort of the everyday work of social service providers like teachers, guidance counselors, therapists, community leaders, religious leaders, uh, to essentially identify young people who they think might be vulnerable to or in the process of terrorist radicalization. So teachers, while they're sort of going through their everyday work in the classroom teaching, that they're looking for certain signs or indicators that a young person might be drawn towards um, quote unquote, violent extremist ideology or beliefs um, or violence, um, and then report uh, these young people to law enforcement agencies or to, you know, other sort of community organizations that are participating in these anti-terrorism initiatives. So the idea was really um, one, it's like a force multiplier, right? Instead of just having police officers and uh, military soldiers conducting the global war on terror, we can actually increase the number of participants in the war by essentially deputizing all of these social service providers and community leaders, essentially as proxy national security agents, whose duty um, is to identify people vulnerable to terrorist radicalization. And so part of this was also about rebranding law enforcement. So, um, you know, throughout U.S. history, we've seen in these 
moments of crises we can think about um, in the moments, you know, the, the sort of months following the killing of uh, George Floyd, we can think about the 1990s um, and the LA uprisings. We can think about uh, the 1960s and 70s uh, repression of the, the black freedom struggle that the U.S. has always devised these sort of friendlier community policing programs as a response to sort of essentially the crisis of police legitimacy. And so there was all of this uh, pushback from Muslim organizations, but also civil rights um, advocacy groups um, from communities themselves, pushing back against sort of the infiltration of mosques, of communities, of community spaces by police officers in sort of this um, hunt for potential terrorists. And so part of this community policing model was about, um, you know, allegedly creating police community partnerships. So it wasn't the police who were infiltrating mosques, but it was members of the mosque themselves taking on this policing work. And so this was pitched, you know, by President Obama as this liberal alternative to more conventional counterterrorism measures that communities themselves had you know, been resisting and challenging and contesting. Um, and so, you know, it was essentially seen as uh, we're responding to community concerns by implementing this friendlier, nicer um, community policing program. Now, um, in your framing, you also, you, you move from uh, the terminology of Islamophobia to one of anti, uh, anti-Muslim racism. Um, which, of course, you're, you're not the only person to do this, but um, can you explain uh, your use of this framing? And can you talk about how um, anti-Muslim racism informs the, the structural logics of CVE? Yeah, so the shifting from Islamophobia to anti-Muslim racism, as others, and especially as community organizers have pointed out, is really about highlighting that Islamophobia is uh, is not just a phobia or a fear of Islam or Muslims, that it is a structural problem that's sort of built into the laws, policies, um, as well as sort of interpersonal relations um, that sort of define the United States. And so sort of rethinking rethinking Islamophobia as anti-Muslim racism for me was useful in in sort of being able to think about countering violent extremism programs, not just as, well, the problem is that there are these individual people who are using anti-Muslim reference to identify future terrorists, but that the program itself was contributing to a broader system and set of structures, policing institutions for one, um, that, that was really about sort of expanding police power in the United States. And so the, the sort of understanding of anti-Muslim racism as a structural feature of U.S. society that is also, um, you know, permanent um, and continuous um, was useful for thinking about CVE as not just a liberal reform, but a liberal reform intending to expand and intensify racialized institutions like the police. Um, and, so, and so for me, that's why it was important was to really center that Islamophobia is a structural condition and we don't need better cops or better trained police officers um, or you know, better trained community workers. Uh, we actually need to get to the root of what creates sort of um, anti-Muslim policies and programs in the United States. Now, um, for, for the project, you you did a whole bunch of uh, 
uh, work in, in different areas, um, some of it ethnographic, some of it, um, you know, textual studies, um, interviews, all sorts of stuff. So c- can you talk about um, working on this project and the type of resources you, you accessed and, um, and particularly what, what were some of the, the challenges you faced in, in doing research on CVE? Yeah, I think those are great questions. Um, you know, the the project was really first conceptualized as trying to get sort of into the heads of national security practitioners. And a lot of this is drawn from my work on that ethnography of the, the high school at the Homeland Security Program, because part of that project was trying to understand how teachers could do what I thought was not in the best interest of students, but think that this was what was good for their students. And so I was also trying to understand, you know, I saw these national security policies and communities had been arguing that these policies harmed them. And so one of the things I wanted to really understand was how do these national security policymakers and practitioners come to see CVE as really this liberal reform to regressive terrorism policy? Um, And so part of that was, you know, just going around the country and interviewing people and, you know, going to their professional trainings and conferences to really sort of immerse myself in sort of the logics and narratives and language that that people were using to frame the problem of national security and potential solutions to it. Um, So, you know, I think (laughs) it was difficult in some ways because I think, um, you know, people really wanted to portray national security programs in a particular way. And sometimes what people would say to me, you know, either in a public setting or in a private interview didn't necessarily match with, um, say, for example, I got public documents like emails between national security officials that in these private email exchanges between each other, they were actually talking about Islam and Muslims and national security in very different ways. So one of the real challenges was trying to, in interviews, like trying to get people to say what they actually thought. Um, But there was so much suspicion um, with me interviewing people, um, you know, that some people didn't take me seriously. Some people like took phone calls. Um, Some people, you know, uh, were dismissive of community concerns around anti-terrorism policies. They would call them conspiracy theorists, um, you know, or like unintelligent analyses. So you know, security professionals sort of were resistant um, to in the interview process. And so that was hard really to capture their perspectives on national security um, since it felt sort of staged uh, what their responses were. Um, There was also a great deal of suspicion um, in what my intentions were, what I was trying to get uh, out of the interviews um, and so on. And also, you know, during this time, 2016, 2017, there was enormous community pushback against countering violent extremism programs. And so it was often that I would be, you know, at some kind of professional development or conference um, and community members would show up and, and push back and challenge uh, what was, you know, being said and talked about. Um, and that also created uh, another layer um, to try to access what national security practitioners, um, you know, had to say. Um, and also there were great efforts, national security practitioners went to, to silence community members. So getting the perspectives of community members themselves, uh, you know, they would submit questions um, and, you know, or raise their hands to try to get 
you know, their comments on the record and they would just be ignored or silenced um, by the by the conveners. Um, you know, so it, it was a very, you know, high pitched sort of tense uh, kind of field work that I was doing across the country because there was so much contestation over over these policies. Um, and so it, you know, it made it hard to actually just talk frankly with people. Um, I also interviewed, so at the time of the research, um, the United States was trying to say that their anti-terrorism policies didn't specifically target Muslims, that they were what they were calling ideologically ecumenical, like this all-inclusive sort of anti-terrorism approach. And so increasingly they had um, what are known as former white supremacists. So people who had been in sort of neo-Nazi skinhead movements and had, you know, quote unquote, left um, the life uh, of hate um, were, were asked to sort of speak at these events. And so part of, you know, the participants in this research study were these former white supremacists um, who, you know, in interviews, um, you know, it, it's not easy to interview former white supremacists about the white supremacist things that they did. Um, and certainly you don't give up all of your white supremacist ideas and thoughts, um, you know, in a year or two years. And so there were difficulties also, you know, just the challenges of interviewing people um, you're in opposition with or whose worldviews you don't necessarily agree with and whose work you've seen do real harm to communities. Um, so I think that, you know, for me, that was another layer of how to do the work um, honestly and ethically while also understanding the people I'm interviewing are not necessarily, um, you know, people I trust or people whose work um, I see as, as supporting communities. Yeah, that sounds very challenging. Do you, do you have any tips on how to do that? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that I talk about a little bit in the book is how, you know, everyone I came to interview, even sort of the most hostile research participants, I could sympathize or to some degree, right, that at the end of the day, everyone, like no one woke up maliciously thinking, I want to be anti-Muslim today, right, or I want to be racist today. But of course, they had these ideas about national security and about Islam and so on that, that you know, made them enact, devise and enact uh, racist policies. And so part of it was really trying to, um, you know, capture what Avery Gordon refers to as complex personhood, like really trying to understand the complexities of each person, what brought them to this work. Um, and, and a lot of the people I interviewed who were in high level positions were themselves Muslim or immigrant or Arab. Um, and themselves had been subjected to anti-Muslim, anti-Arab, um, anti-immigrant policies and programs and, you know, viewed their participation in the national security state as a way to um, mitigate some of those harms. So part of it was trying to understand, yeah, how, how do people who have been targeted by the state come to enact the state? Um, and so for me, that was one way that I could sort of work my way through um, sometimes just really hostile and antagonistic um, interview situations because it was reminding me that the goal is like not to convince this person that what they're doing is wrong. It's for me to understand what they think they're trying to achieve and accomplish through this program and then understand how the program is operating, what are the logics that are supporting it, you know, how does it operate on the ground. And so if I could sort of pull myself back a little bit and remind myself of that 
the problem isn't, you know, this is where sort of the structural analysis comes in handy is that it's not about these individual people and if they're good people or bad people, or I disagree with what they're doing or agree with what they're doing, but it's trying to understand the structures and institutions that were set up for people to do this work. Um, and so that, you know, I'm not going to say that, you know, interviewing former white supremacists was easy. Um, and at the same time that, you know, there were ways of reminding myself, here's what the goal of these interviews is. And it's, it's not about your individual relationship with this participant or your feelings about this participant, but trying to map how structures and institutions work through the daily work of national security practitioners. So, I mean, that's, that was one strategy, but, you know, to be honest, it's, it's difficult when, um, you know, someone's berating you in an interview to, to, um, to, to try to stay, uh, you know, on task and, and focused, um, through that. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, so um, uh, part of what you do in the book um, is you're looking at kind of CVE in relation to um, previous approaches to uh, security. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how the supporters of CVE programs um, distinguish themselves from, from other counterterrorism policy or projects. Um, and how does the, the category of, uh, of terrorism uh, fit into this CVE framework? Yeah, so I guess I would say that there are like two sort of main players. There were sort of more the state policymakers, um, and then there were sort of the on the ground practitioners. And, you know, I think the way that sort of, you know, more state level, government level policymakers talked about countering violent extremism was sort of. Um, we understand, you know, historically, um, the war on terror specifically um, has harmed Muslim communities. And so countering violent extremism is essentially a way to reset our relationship with Muslim communities in the United States um, by having them participate um, in the making of national security policy um, and sort of implementing national security programs that um, this is we're sort of turning the page um, from these past policies and practices. Now, of course, you know, they would also admit that this was another tool in their tool belt, that this wasn't getting rid of um, blanket surveillance. It wasn't getting rid of stings. It wasn't getting rid of uh, preventive military strikes, drone strikes, that CVE was, was another tool. Um, and and that, that's very clear in sort of their professional um, settings and conferences and, and, um, uh, you know, development, professional development sessions, that it was very clear that this is another tool um, in their toolkit. But what they, how they promoted CVE to the public was that um, they understood their past practices were harmful and they were, you know, creating this new, brand new approach um, by enlisting the community. And community level anti-terrorism practitioners, you know, they, there was a saying that I heard often um, throughout my field work, and that was, um, it's better to be at the table than on the menu. And so the idea was that they're going to, the state, the government is going to do national security stuff if we're at the table or if we're not at the table. And so it's better for us to at least nominally have a say in what's going on. And that's how several sort of local CVE practitioners sort of got involved um, in this work was this idea that, well, 
you know, the government's going to do this anyway. So if we can kind of steer them to do some things and not other things, you know, that might be helpful. Um, and so, you know, the, the sort of community level critique of that approach was that, well, there is a, you know, there is a third option of just not participating, right? And I think, I think this is a smart analysis because countering violent extremism requires community participation to be a thing at all, not even to be successful, but to be a thing. Um, because CVE hinges on the idea that community members participate in the making of national security. If you don't have any community members doing that, then CVE doesn't exist. And so that was sort of the analysis community organizers made was, we could just not be at the table, we could be non-participants in sort of the national security enterprise um, altogether. But, you know, essentially at every level, there was this understanding that CVE was somehow different from past practices and that it was in that sense, and it's sort of like a liberal anti-racist approach to terrorism. Um, and, you know, of course, terrorism gets reduced um, to something that is about, it. you know, Countering violent extremism is all about identifying future terrorists before they commit a crime. And the way CVE has said that you can do that is if you look for these warning signs of terrorist radicalization, if you look for someone who's growing a beard, um, who's praying five times a day, who's um, suddenly active in a pro-Muslim social group or a Muslim student association, right? Um, these like explicitly racialized indicators of terrorist activity um, were the signs that they were telling teachers and social workers and therapists to use in their daily practices, um, you know, to identify future terrorists. But this was sort of seen as, as a progressive alternative to, the, to law enforcement, essentially engaging in the same practices. Um, and so what you have is um, a very uh, one-dimensional understanding of what terrorism is, that terrorism is a result of cultural, re uh, religious, um, or sort of ideological pathologies, right? Psychological pathologies. That the problem of terrorism isn't about political violence. It's not about power, politics, you know, colonialism, military intervention, and occupation. That it is sort of fundamentally about an individual person's pathological expressions of violence. Um, and so, you know, that kind of approach to terrorism means we can, there are signs of terrorism and we can sort of find future terrorists before they ever commit a crime. Um, while at the same time, sort of absolving the United States of creating the conditions that incite armed resistance, right? So we don't actually have to talk about, you know, um, Israeli occupation of Palestine. We don't have to talk about the invasion of Iraq, right? That, that those kinds of discussions become secondary to sort of the pursuit of these um, individual, so-called individual actors that we can, you know, we can go into a Somali community organization and try to find young people who might be susceptible to terrorist, so-called terrorist ideologies. So I guess, you know, all of that to say is that CVE sort of masquerades as this liberal alternative to conventional anti-terrorism programs like sting operations, while also sort of consolidating this uh, reductive understanding that terrorism is the work of sort of pathological 
actors, right? And that there isn't a unifying political orientation or organization, um, you know, to the violence that people do use in an effort to affect political change. So for me, there's that double movement of um, appearing to be liberal um, and at the same time, really sort of um, solidifying a, a reductive understanding of terrorism that then allows for other sort of counterterrorism practices to sort of emerge um, and replicate. Um, so you you kind of mentioned this a little bit already um, in the sense that, um, you know, people that are participating in CVE programs, the, the CVE actors um, often face pushback, right? There is, there's is some acceptance to this, um, but uh, how do you, how do CVE actors um, manage public objection to their work? And specifically, how do, how do the Muslims participating in this uh, kind of respond or how do they kind of rationalize their, their choice to participate in this? Um, you know, what are, what are the, the benefits and the cost to this kind of, uh, to buy in, to be at the, the table, so to speak? Yeah, I think for me, um, so there is a, a Muslim anti-terrorism practitioner, I guess he would be called, um, who, you know, there's a, a case in Chicago uh, of, of a kid named Adele Dawood who was subject to a, essentially a sting operation um, before he turned 18, year old, 18 years old. So he was a kid during the sting operation. And once he turned 18, he was arrested and so this, this practitioner essentially said, like, look, Dawood is, is representative of everything that's wrong with, you know, conventional counterterrorism policy, that you're going after vulnerable kids, you're targeting Muslims, and the end result is a law enforcement solution to something that should be a sort of civil society um, problem to address. And so that became, the, the sort of figure of Dawood became um, demonstrative of this need for softer, friendlier anti-terrorism policies. And so that was one way, you know, people kind of manage the, these public objections um, to their work. You know, another way was to, to show, um, you know, again, for that quote was, you know, that it's better to have a, a seat at the table, right? Um, and that practitioners could represent the concerns and critiques of the community to the state um, and ensure that the state was engaging um, in, in more progressive and sort of less repressive national security policies. For, for more state level policymakers, you know, as I said before, there was this desire to say that CVE was ideologically ecumenical, that there was nothing, that there was no anti-Muslim um, orientation to CVE. And if if that were true, that were that was in um, what they would call first-generation CVE programs. That that people had made mistakes both in uh, sort of the post-September 11 climate and in the initial launch of countering violent extremism as sort of national policy. And so, you know, you'd hear people from the Department of Homeland Security say, you know, we've learned from past mistakes, um, you know, or say, you know, I was a victim of national security policy, and that's why I'm working for the Department of Homeland Security. Um, so, so you had this, this, this narrative that was out there that, they under, that 
policymakers understood that CVE had previously done harm and that they had corrected uh, they had corrected those mistakes in sort of the second generation um, CVE programs. At the same time, uh, they also understood that policymakers understood like, look, we can't, we're not going to convince everyone. So they would do things like, um, like there was a document that um, was encouraging people to use what they called pass-through organizations or third-party intermediaries. So if you got a Department of Homeland Security CVE grant, then it would go to a community organization and that community organization would re-grant the money under, you know, Somali youth development or arts programming uh, to make it harder to follow the CVE money. So you have on the one hand policymakers saying, we did bad things, we've learned from those mistakes and don't do them anymore. On the other hand, they admitted that CVE, just the name itself was toxic and tried to hide money um, to avoid the critique around CVE. And of course, there was just another group of people who you know, essentially treated community organizers at, you know, people who are critiquing CVE essentially as conspiracy theorists, as sort of tinfoil hat um, people who um, just like didn't have the right analysis, were missing kind of the factual basis of CVE. Um, so that was another group of people. And then there was this, I would say this last group of, of individuals who tried really hard to say that their work was evidence-based. And so a lot of you know, the social science critique around CVE research, what's known as radicalization research, trying to show that there are these pathways uh, these to radical terrorist radicalization, that essentially there are, there's sort of a predictable process by which an individual transforms from like a regular person into a terrorist um, and that there are markers that you can identify a person's progression in that process. And so social scientists had shown like you, there is no predictable process. There is no profile uh, of a terrorist. Like that this, this is not something that's scientifically backed and all of the studies are methodologically flawed in some way. And so practitioners went from saying this is an evidence-based program uh, because there are predictable indicators or signs of terrorist radicalization to saying this is an evidence-based program because there are indicators and signs that a person might be vulnerable to terrorist radicalization. So it was acknowledging that there is no scientific basis to identify a future terrorist while saying that same research says, well, we can figure out who's vulnerable to being a terrorist. And so we can use the same practices and the same warning signs and indicators that we've been using um, this entire time. And then there were some savvier um, folks who started publishing lists and warning signs that are so vague, um, you know, like depression, changes in sleep, um, you know, trouble in romantic relationships, you know, like, you know, something that everybody experiences in their lifetime. Um, and they were so vague, right, that they only aroused suspicion when expressed by Muslim, Arab, Somali immigrant folks. Um, and so that was, again, a way to say, we don't target Muslims. Um, look at our warning signs. They're, they're all, they're, they're, they don't racially profile. They don't target re religiosity or religious practices. They don't um, target certain sects of Islam. Like, you know, it's trying to um, go above and beyond proving that they don't racially profile while clearly engaging 
in racial profiling um, through through the program. So there were a lot of strategies um, that folks deployed on the ground to try to convince people that their critiques uh, were not legitimate critiques. But at the end of the day, CVE was still criminalizing communities of color, Muslim communities, and infiltrating um, you know, very intimate spaces of everyday life and transforming them into these, these sites of surveillance. Now, um, a key part of this that, that shows up uh, frequently um, across the book, but specifically you, you focus on it towards the end of the book, is uh, this, this idea of, of youth radicalization. Um, and you've kind of already hinted at this, but uh, there was a line in the book, something along the lines of, uh, you know, teachers are the, the front line of the global war on terror, which was just so frightening and striking to me when I read it. But um, it makes sense from, from, from reading your work here. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how these radicalization models target Muslim youth, um, you know, how do these kind of theories get institutionalized in places like schools, but but elsewhere as well? And then what are what are some of the effects that they these have, uh, you know, on 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 Muslim youth? Yeah, so there's, you know, across CVE programs, there's this belief that young people are more susceptible to terrorist radicalization for all kinds of reasons uh, because they're young people. Um, because their brains, you know, quote unquote, aren't fully developed, um, because their identities are changing and, and terrorist recruiters can sort of exploit, um, you know, searching for purpose and identity um, for, you know, their recruitment purposes. Um, so these sort of panics around young, young Muslims becoming terrorists was sort of built into CBE policies. And we can think about this um, if we think about um, you know, the idea of the coming super predator in the 80s and 90s, it was very similar, right? That there are these young, remorseless kids who are going to overtake uh, city centers um, and enact all kinds of crime and violence. Um, so it kind of draws on this legacy sort of of eugenics thinking um, to create this specter of the Muslim youth terrorist. And it's really the specter of, of that uh, Muslim youth terrorist that organizes a lot of uh, CVE research, radicalization research in particular, and therefore makes places like schools, community centers, athletic centers, like youth leagues, um, you know, really critical spaces for anti-terrorism programs, right? So, you know, the belief is that because young people are more vulnerable to terrorist radicalization, we have to go to where the young people are. We have to go to their soccer leagues. We have to go to where they hang out, where they go to school um, in order to prevent um, terrorist radicalization. And so a part of that is, you know, essentially saying that people who interact and know young people the most, like teachers, coaches, religious leaders, are best positioned to identify changes in behavior, to identify concerning behaviors, um, to identifying sort of, uh, sort of becoming more radical in, in belief and practice. Um, and so CVE essentially um, you know, has asked teachers to become these terrorist watchdogs. Um, and this really borrows from, from the PREVENT program um, in the UK that actually mandates that teachers and other child care providers um, report, you know, look for and then report young people who they think might be future terrorists. And, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the cases that, um, you know, are, are pretty well known are 
you know, a, a kid drawing a picture, you know, like a four-year-old kid drawing a picture of a cucumber and mispronouncing it and saying cuckerbum and it gets interpreted as cookerbum. And so the kid is reported, you know, as a potential terrorist. And so when we treat young people, young Muslims in particular, um, as sort of the preeminent terrorist threat, um, it changes how we think about the spaces that they occupy, right? So school is no longer school. School is a place to teach young people how not to be terrorists, how to think critically so they're not duped by terrorist recruiters. Um, so that's where you saw the introduction, the, the attempted sort of mandating of the Don't Be a Puppet website as mandated curriculum for all high school students. Now, there's enough pushback from communities that this, this wasn't the case, but it sort of goes to, to sort of the, the FBI and other agencies' ideas, that idea that high school students are most vulnerable to terrorist recruitment. And so high schools have to kind of reorganize in order to prevent people from young people from becoming terrorists. You also see like the emergence of global education programs. Um, so the idea is, um, I think one example I give in the book is this person saying that you have to like re-engineer a young person so that they identify as a global citizen. Because if you identify as a Muslim, as an Arab, as an immigrant, that those identity, or it's like this sort of sectarianism argument that those identities um, prevent social cohesion. And so if you have this global identity, that you're part of a global community, then terrorist recruiters can't exploit, you know, your sense of um, Muslimness or Arabness um, as, a, as a part of their recruitment schemes. And that's what makes things like Muslim student associations, um, you know, in the eyes of the state so dangerous because they're about supporting um, Muslim students and also creating pride in Muslim identity, right? And that is seen as a terrorist breeding ground then because it is that very identity that is seen as, the, as part of the terrorism problem um, in the United States. So you can see then how radicalization research and anti-terrorism policy more generally is about sort of fostering fear of individual Muslims that there is no sort of structural analysis, there is no foreign policy analysis, that it is all about finding, you know, looking under rocks for these potential future terrorists. Um, and, and schools therefore become, you know, important sites to undertake that work. Um, and so you would have young people, you know, young people are aware of these policies and programs. Young people understand that there's um, these lists uh, of warning signs and indicators that tie religiosity, that tie um, political beliefs and expressions to future terrorist activity. So you have young people who won't, you know, raise their hand in social studies class to comment on, you know, the war in Afghanistan, to comment on U.S. foreign policy. Um, you know, you won't have students Google things while they're at school, right? So you're really sort of chilling political discussion in class, you're chilling sort of the sort of um, freedom to, to explore and learn about certain topics. Um, and I think in Minneapolis in particular, um, even just trying to talk about the Syrian war and even just trying to talk um, about the rise of ISIS um, was such a hot button issue that kids were too afraid to talk about it because they had seen people in their community who had talked about 
um, the brutality of the Assad regime who are trying to understand, you know, you know, different rebel groups um, who expressed outrage and some desire to go to Syria to fight, um, that they saw their friends being arrested and locked up for these kinds of conversations. And so young people became afraid to have the very conversations that are important to having a political analysis and, a cr and critical thinking skills that we want young people to have and to get through school. Um, and so you really see just like this chilling of, of political discussion in class to the point that kids are afraid to not only say anything, but to study and understand because the very conversations themselves are, are seen as dangerous. Asking about ISIS is seen as dangerous. Um, and so what you're left with is kids just talking to each other um, or going on social media to learn more about the Syrian war, to learn more about ISIS and the Saf, um, and not having these conversations out in public. Um, and so I think, you know, for me as, a, as an educator, that's one of the more devastating impacts. You know, I think we can talk about the criminalization, the incarceration, the fear and paranoia, um, and also the, just the denial of educational opportunity through the, this creating fear of trying to learn or talk uh, about certain issues in the classroom or even in community spaces. Um, well, Nicole, there's, there's tons of directions uh, the book goes and goes into much greater detail than we were able to go here, but is there anything you want to uh, discuss that we didn't get to? No, I, I, your questions were great and open-ended. Awesome. Um, I'm wondering if you could uh, tell us a little bit about your current work, which um, I, I think kind of extends the, the analysis here into kind of broader areas. Yeah, so I'm actually working on a new book project that um, is exploring um, terrorism prosecutions and terrorism cases in the United States to really think through um, what does abolition mean for political violence and specifically terrorists? So it's really trying to use the figure of the terrorist to rethink an abolitionist framework that is sort of broad enough to capture all these sort of transnational nuances uh, of, of, you know, what does, what does abolition mean for people who enact uh, or seek to enact political violence? Um, yeah, so that's the, that's more, the most recent project. I'm still certainly thinking, thinking through it and, uh, averse and sort of going to, um, different court cases and observing, um, those court cases to really under, just understand what is the role of the law and the criminal legal system more generally, um, in the prosecution of, of the war on terror to then sort of think through what does abolition mean, um, for, for this set of defendants. Wow. Sounds, sounds really interesting. And, and again, it sounds like uh, critical work that uh, could have a lot of uh, effect, just like your, your previous two books. So good luck. And uh, thanks for making time to talk about this great book. Yeah, thanks for having me. That was my conversation with Nicole Nguyen about suspect communities, anti-Muslim racism, and the domestic war on terror, published with the University of Minnesota Press in 2019. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies.